Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 21st of April 2023. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen, as usual. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And we've got Vanessa Billy joining us from Damascus uh, via video link, uh, also as usual for Friday. Uh, so let's get uh, kicked off with well, the news of Dominic Raab. He's decided to resign. Here he is. Uh, I resign, he said. Let's see what he actually said. Uh, he tweeted out his uh, resignation statement at about 10 o'clock this morning. I'm writing to resign from your government, he wrote to Rishi. Uh, following receipt of a report arising from the inquiry conducted by Adam Tully, QC, KC, sorry, uh, I called for the inquiry and, uh, and undertook to resign uh, if it made any findings of bullying whatsoever. I believe it is important to keep my word. Uh, it's a privilege, blah, 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 and so on. But the, the next uh, paragraph was more important. Uh, while I feel duty-bound to accept the outcome of the inquiry, it dismissed all but two of the claims leveled against me, so he's trying to uh, say that he's not a bully at all. Uh, I also believe its two adverse findings are flawed and set a dangerous precedent for the conduct of good government. First, ministers must be able to exercise direct oversight with respect to senior officials over critical negotiations conducted on behalf of the British people. Otherwise, the democratic and constitutional principle of ministerial responsibility will be lost. This was particularly true during my time as Foreign Secretary in the context of Brexit negotiations over Gibraltar when a senior diplomat breached the mandate agreed by the cabinet. So he's attempting to justify his position. But look, you know, other than the distraction that it is, um, there is a, an important point here is, and that is that since Tony Blair, the relationship between uh, ministers, secretaries of state and civil servants has changed. Uh, and this idea of collective responsibility and ministerial responsibility was more or less lost from that point uh, because policy became, rather than the decision of the minister, the decision of the civil servants. And uh, uh, the minister's role purely is to sell that policy to the public these days. Um, but I, mean, I don't know what your thoughts are. I'm just wondering if this is some Tory Machiavellian uh, elimination exercise because somebody's challenging for somebody's leadership position or some power dynamic going on within the, the Machiavellian Conservative Party. What do you think? It's very possible. I mean, it, it's, it is very possible. I don't really quite grasp. But anyway, we'd lost our Deputy Prime Minister, and it's a real shame. I'm extremely sorry, as I'm sure everybody can tell. But anyway, let's get on to some better news. Uh, and here is uh, Children's Health Defence. Uh, JFK Jr. launches his presidential campaign, vows to reduce chronic disease in children. Uh, so uh, this, of course, was uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Kennedy, Children's Health Defence founder and chairman on leave, uh, spoke for nearly two hours and covered a wide range of issues, everything from his family's history in American politics to the military-industrial complex, to widespread censorship and to the attacks on civil liberties, the environment and public health. Uh, so let's just have a look at uh, a short clip here from the first couple of minutes of the first minute or so, at least, of his uh, uh, announcement. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. And I, my mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now 
They threatening now to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism on our country, to commoditize our children, our Purple Mountain's majesty, to poison our, our children and our people with, with chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs, to strip mine our assets, to hollow out the middle class and keep us in a constant state of war. Okay, so Patrick told me that I said JFK Jr. there. I do apologize for that. Of course, that was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, so uh, just to clarify that. Uh, but uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, it's getting a fairly positive response in the chat box for sure. Yeah, well, we knew he was going to announce his run and he was gonna, likely going to do it. But it's one thing to say it and think it. And it's another thing to see him there with Kennedy 2024. And as you can imagine, Mike, and I think for British people as well, the entire Anglophone world, that there's a bit of an emotional uh, attachment to that because of the JFK issues, so emotive. A lot of people believe that history took a wrong turn after the assassination of John uh, Fitzgerald Kennedy. And of course, Robert F. Kennedy's uh, Jr.'s father, Robert Kennedy, was running for president uh, in 68 and was, was assassinated as well. So um, it is an emotional thing. I think it really resonates with a lot of people in America. Um, just on a basic level. Uh, now, <laughs> to get to the reality of party politics, that's another question. So here's the thing. Joe Biden's been waffling about confirming whether he's going to run for a second term. Right. He keeps dragging his heels. Oh, we're not sure yet. He's babbling, mumbling, and things like that. His wife is doing apology, apology uh, interviews for him, not confirming. So why is this? Now RFK has jumped in the race. Now Biden has to say, they have to say something really soon. And I think the reason they were dragging their feet is because they have a replacement for Biden um, who they will bring in at, at a later date, but they don't want to announce it too early because some other Democrats might come in and want to challenge as well. And the Democrats like a nice, tidy, fixed race. That, so they'll allow for some plurality, but at the end of the day, the DNC always chooses ahead of time, whether it's Hillary Clinton, or Joe Biden, who is going to be their candidate. They'll right. go through the motions, make it look like it's a fair uh, game. But So I think that's this is going to put pressure on the White House. And Joe Biden's a lame duck. So all of the legislation, everything that he wants to do as a president, as soon as he say, says he's not running, he's a lame duck. And it will really weaken uh, the legislative efforts uh, of the, whatever the Democrats think they can do in the next 18 months. Right. So this is really massive. Now, the attacks have already started. And anti-vaxxer, Robert F. Kennedy, the headlines are, are, are really shameful, Mike. Mm -hmm. Anti-vaxxer and conspiracy theorist RFK announces he's running for a Democratic nomination. So it's just going to be one after another. They'll find sex scandals. They'll drag out old Kennedy family members who don't like him, saying bad things about him. But look, the, the people who support Trump resonated with a lot of what RFK said in that speech. And there's a lot of Democrats that feel totally disenchanted and feel left out of the process and ignored. There's a lot of Republicans as well that are sort of more, you know, moderate centrist Republicans. They're going to resonate with JFK, even if RFK. you... Are, <laughs> you did it to me. Yeah, I did it to it's you. It's contagious. Yeah. Um, so they're going to resonate with his message. So... That, that, what does that mean? That means that 6%, what Jill Stein got mm -hmm. in 2016, that was enough to 
to potentially swing the election to Trump. So, you know, whatever, you know, if he goes independent, if he stays in the race, they're probably going to railroad him out during the primaries. Okay. But if he, st if he stays in for the distance, he could actually be the game changer. Donald Trump could also offer him a vice presidential ticket. That's not completely out of the realms of possibility, considering how cutthroat and cannibalizing the Republican Party currently is. You think he would accept? It has happened before. One, the last uh, unity ticket was uh, Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. Yeah, but what I mean is, would he accept an offer from Trump? Would he? Would, would I'm sure he would. Mm -hmm. I, I'm positive he would. It would be some kind of a unity ticket. This happened after the Civil War, by the way. So it has happened. And America's in a very tumultuous situation right now, Mike. So I wouldn't rule anything out. So it's going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns coming, a lot of unexpected truth bombs and scandals that are going to be dropped as well. But uh, And Gavin Newsom, that could be the replacement for Biden. Kennedy is a very good contrast to, to Newsom. But it, it means that the vaccine issue can be raised now. And it's going to actually put pressure on Trump to address Operation Warp Speed, because that's a sore point with Trump supporters. Um, and just as a final comment, I did notice no teleprompter. No teleprompter. So that so was when Joe Biden can do that, maybe that would qualify him a bit more to be president for a second term. So that was impressive. So it was from the heart. You know, that was one of the best political speeches I've ever heard in my life. It's probably in the top three. Yeah. So I was very impressed. So we'll see how, how things develop. So stop the 9-11 cover-up. Uh, and the question is, is it a false flag? Okay. So there's been a breakthrough in the 9-11 story. Uh, and this is something that has been lingering for many weeks, uh, but is now sort of coming into view. So the question is, is, is it a false flag? So there, there hasn't, 22 years, 22 years since 9-11, uh, there has been no breakthroughs. And finally, we have something that looks like it could be significant. We'll see. We'll see. So what happened here, these are the basically the public defenders of the 9-11 suspects that are detained currently in Guantanamo Bay. And they're being defended by a Pentagon-appointed group of a committee of public defenders. It's called the Military Commission's Defense Organization. Uh, and so what, what have they unearthed here? So this is a court filing by the Guantanamo Military Commission, reveals possible CIA involvement in the violation of U.S. law in the 9-11 attacks. So the details are here. Nice uh, Twitter thread here, all credit to the Mises Caucus there, the Mises Institute. And so what are, what are sort of the main points here? Look at this. So documents show a relationship between terrorists, Saudi intelligence services formed by the CIA with their officers through a group they call the Safari Club, a secret alliance of nations the CIA uses to conduct unlawful operations. And there, there's more. The CIA assigned officers. Um, they had to find ways to blame the FBI for the attacks. The CIA tried to hide that they were aware of the relationships between the hijackers and Al-Qaeda uh, because they were running a, quote, false flag operation. So you can see how this is getting into the gray areas here of clandestine tradecraft. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? But here's where it gets interesting. The UBL station was allegedly tasked with building informants inside Al-Qaeda, but it was ran in a way that would make that nearly impossible, possibly because analysts secretly already had men on the ground and were not disclosing it as part 
of a hidden operation even within the CIA. So these are, you know, cells within cells within uh, intelligence services here, the Russian doll syndrome. So despite outcry from the agencies at the station and an awareness of the danger to a, quote, stop uh, was not authorized to prevent the hijackers from entering the country. FBI command ordered agents to, quote, stand down in their investigations of the hijackers. So this is very similar to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, right. which was exposed through uh, with a confidential FBI informant. The, the bombs were supposed to be dummies. The FBI was managing the whole process along the way. So I see some overlap here. And so this is very, to me, very credible. This could very easily be spun into a, a little bit of a psyop as the U.S. government would like very much to cover this up or minimize what is being said here by the witnesses, right. okay? So to, to, this isn't a slam dunk, this is only a court filing, but I'm saying it's very revealing. We didn't show you all the details, by the way, those are just some of the highlights, but it does corroborate things that we've said on this program and things that I myself have written about and, uh, and other people have covered over the years. That is, this 9-11 uh, had a, a US intelligence clandestine uh, element to it. And so that's not to say how 9-11 happened, how the Twin Towers came down. That's a separate conversation. Right. We're talking about these so-called Saudi hijackers. Now, who do they have in Gitmo, Mike? Uh, obviously not the pilots flying the planes. Mm. <laughs> so, so we're told. Um, so not the hijackers themselves, but those who worked with them or their accomplices. So that's... That, take that and sort of make a mental note of that because that's may or may not be um, uh, credible in some people's eyes because how is this information, uh, how have they gleaned it under duress, mm -hmm. waterboarding? So it's, it's early days. I think this is a significant opening though. And certainly it's going to drive the conspiracy realms crazy. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on it then. Uh, so let's uh, move on to Ukraine. And I just wanted to start off with this, uh, the latest defense intelligence update because it's just another disgraceful piece of uh, text. Uh, soft ground conditions, according to the Ministry of Defense, are the biggest problems uh, across most of Ukraine. Uh, severe mud is likely slowing operations on both sides of the conflict. However, Russia's, Russian online outlets are likely exaggerating the overall impact of mud on Ukrainian forces as part of an information operation aimed at raising Russian morale and undermining Ukraine supporters in light of an anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, is that likely or not? I think it's not very likely that that's what they're doing. Well, that's, uh, this is what they're putting out. What's the real question? Yeah, how credible is the defense intelligence updates from the UK? What's their track record like? Have they been, what's their batting average, as they say in America? Pretty low. So I don't know. Pretty low. I take it all with a pinch of salt coming out of that. But uh, where does that take us? It takes us on to the Pentagon leaks, and uh, will this continues to garner reactions, uh, Patrick? Sure. Uh, and this, here's the real reactions that we like to see: uh, reactions from lawmakers, legislators. Matt Gates, congressman from Florida, introduces uh, a new resolution, House resolution, privileged resolution, to force President Biden and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to transmit all documents on on deployed U.S. troops in Ukraine. That was one of the big takeaways was the confirmation that there were a hundred odd U.S. special forces in a combat uh, capacity on the ground in Ukraine. So that was part of the Pentagon leaks and we covered that last week. 
Um, so here's the, uh, in, the 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 result of this. They want to they want an audit. They want to know who's in there, what they're doing in Ukraine, mm -hmm. how long they've been there, and so forth. So this is going to be interesting. Whether this is going to get any uh, traction with the rest of the House is maybe not maybe doubtful, but you can see things are moving after these Pentagon leaks. That's a very important signal, very important signal indeed. So think about that. And also here's Peter Hitchens' recent article here. Why are the SAS in Ukraine? And why do we have, a, you know, and, and, why, and do we have a clue why we're involved in this war? So for the mail on Sunday, uh, interesting. So you've, you've reported on this before, haven't you? Uh, on the fact that the SAS is in Ukraine, yes. So, so the Pentagon leaks <clears throat> certainly suggested that the UK had the largest number of special forces operating uh, in Ukraine at 50. Uh, and actually, the United States was quite a few down the list. Um, so we were well out in front on that. So um, I hadn't seen this article from Hitchens. Yeah. So, this is, so it's good to see. So the questions are being asked here, and certainly they're not going to stop. And at the same time, this has also surfaced here. A group of Republican lawmakers have sent this letter to the President of the United States, and this is what they're saying. Unrestrained U.S. aid for Ukraine must come to an end, and we will adamantly oppose all future aid packages unless they're linked to clear diplomatic strategy designed to bring this war to a rapid conclusion. I like the sound of that. I don't know about you. There's the signatures, and there's some familiar faces on there. Senator Mike Lee, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, uh, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, Arizona, so, so and Matt Gates, of course, again, no surprise there. So that's those senators and uh, uh, House members, Congress members. So uh, not a bipartisan uh, letter, but nonetheless, you have a, a fairly strong anti-war contingent mm -hmm. built into the uh, Republican Party, remnants of the old Freedom Caucus. J.D. Vance as well, freshman senator from Ohio. So this is, uh, I think this is overall very encouraging. We'll see how, how, mu how much uh, purchase it gets. Okay, uh, and that takes us to uh, this. So I just wanted to point out, uh, if people will go, this is an amazing overview here. Uh, the Ukraine crisis in context, Brzezinski's grand chessboard in the 21st century. And this is by Dr. Jean Aremton, and he's a Turkish uh, scholar. And uh, his work is on this is incredible. So he pretty much breaks it down uh, how you got we got to this point to the to to begin with, and how this is just a continuation, a gradual continuation of U.S. policy, U.S. Uh, grand strategy uh, over the last few decades. So from administration to administration, he shows there's been absolutely no change uh, in the U.S. Uh, orientation towards Ukraine and Russia on this, and there there are plans and there are intentions to. Uh, break up Russia or to make it into a failed state. So you'll see the uh, receipts are in that article. So I encourage people to uh, get it, share the link as well. It's an excellent read. Uh, okay, so uh, if this uh, open letter from the senators is asking for the U.S. to stop uh, aid to Ukraine, what's the uh, U.S. administration's response to that? Well, here it is. This is from uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, additional U.S. security assistance for Ukraine, let's just see what he had to say. Pursuant to the delegation of authority from President Biden, I'm authorizing our 36th drawdown of U.S. arms and equipment for Ukraine, valued at $325 million. Uh, the security assistance package includes more ammunition for U.S.-provided HIMARS and artillery rounds, as well as anti-armor systems, small arms logistics support vehicles, uh, and maintenance support essential to strengthening uh, Ukraine's uh, defenders on the battlefield. Now, of course, when he says maintenance support there, 
Uh, he's talking about U.S. servicemen providing maintenance support on the ground. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So what happens then if we if the United States sends uh, Patriot missiles to uh, Ukraine? Well, How many U.S. staff go along with those? Lots and lots and lots more. Not yeah. only that, you've got the uh, the whole supply chain for the Patriot missile batteries. You've got you've got engineering. You've got maintenance. You've got ordnance. You're talking about a huge contingent of U.S. forces, and those are going to be likely uh, around someone like Kiev, for instance, or maybe uh, Lviv as well. This does dovetail to what we said last week. Um, is there is the final card going to be a play? to create a no-fly zone or a safe zone in Western Ukraine. Mm. So we'll see. Um, so Jens Stoltenberg then over the last day or two was in uh, Czech Republic uh, meeting the Czech president, uh, Peter Pavel. Uh, there they are. They look uh, very handsome together. Uh, but let's just look and listen to what Peter Pavel said, a very brief comment here uh, with respect to Russia. And we get an idea of what the thinking is within NATO. I'm um, happy that we uh, all understand that there is no alternative to supporting uh, Ukraine uh, because uh, uh, alternative to it is uh, uh, success of Russia. And uh, that would mean uh, many more problems uh, for us, uh, potentially even more serious uh, than we face today. Uh, so uh, support of Ukraine uh, is uh, a must uh, and uh, we um, have to be uh, consistent uh, in uh, maintaining uh, sufficient public support in our countries, uh, explaining uh, people uh, what uh, kind of uh, threat uh, we would face if we stop supporting Ukraine. So that's, that was quite an incredible comment. You know, if, if uh, basically they're saying there can be no uh, peaceful solution to this problem, with, uh, that Russia cannot be allowed to continue uh, to be as powerful as it is, and they've got to do everything. So, you know, what can we say? Now, on Wednesday's program, uh, Brian asked the question, where is Ben Wallace? And, uh, well, it turns, uh, it turns out he was in the United States uh, over the last couple of uh, few days, uh, meeting, uh, who is this? Austin uh, Austin, Powers. Par Austin Powers, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> That's my pet name. Yes, I know. Lloyd, Lloyd Austin. Austin, yeah. He's our defense secretary. Indeed, and he was also meeting General Mark Milley uh, to discuss uh, a range of defense and security issues of mutual concern, including support for Ukraine in this war, uh, in the war, and uh, uh, NATO and AUKUS, of course, as well. But he didn't end there. He flew from the United States over to uh, Switzerland, uh, where he was uh, signing defense agreements there. Uh, and uh, But don't worry, Patrick, because those, whatever documents they were signing there, and we don't know the specific details of them, uh, they are honoring Swiss military neutrality. I'm not quite sure how you do that when you're signing defense agreements with countries that if you're a neutral country. But, you know, we start, we're starting to see countries that have traditionally had neutrality, like Switzerland and Ireland, seeming to move away from that position. And it's probably not the best. So they're using Ukraine, using this crisis to dra drag the last neutral countries. What's left after that? Austria? Is there anyone left besides that in Europe? No. I don't think so, no. Not really. No. Interesting. So we'll see. Okay, well, let's move to the Middle East and welcome Vanessa to the program. Uh, Vanessa, what's been going on uh, in Turkey? Yeah, in Turkey, well, last week, of course, we were talking about the potential for the meeting of uh, the defense ministers, the foreign ministers, and even potentially the president's, uh, President Assad of Syria. Of course, his red line was that Turkey should remove all military presence, including 
the extremist armed groups under their control um, from Syria and return Syrian territory to the status quo pre-2011. And last week, uh, Turkish officials were a, a lot more conciliatory, uh, but I did talk about the potential for U.S. interference in the Iranian-Russian brokered uh, peaceful resolution between Turkey and Syria, and in fact, it happened very shortly uh, after last week's program. So suddenly here, we have Erdogan doing another kind of uh, U-turn, which is a familiar um sort of uh, element of his uh, presidency. He comes out with the statement, and this is reported in the cradle, Turks cannot feel safe with PKK, which is, of course, the uh, US-backed, equipped, armed uh, Kurdish Contras uh, in uh, northern Syria and Iraq. But then if we uh, just move on, Mike, um, so basically, uh, Erdogan on the 17th of April said that his people cannot feel safe in the first place in the presence of a terrorist organization, which is kind of ironic as he's been funding terrorism in Syria uh, since the beginning of uh, the war against Syria and was training um, terrorist groups in Turkey. Um, in the presence of an organization in northern Syria and Iraq equipped with air and ground weapons. Now, those air and ground weapons are supplied by another NATO member state, namely the United States. That was reported by Sputnik. He then says, we have shown our determination in this context time and time again, thanks to our continuous operations within our borders and our cross-border operations, which I would say, I mean, if you remember in 2014, um, Serena Shem was most probably murdered by Turkish intelligence agencies because she was reporting on uh, the Turkish border being used to transport uh, weapons, terrorist uh, fighters, and even chemical weapon ingredients. He says, then, we have made it clear that our country cannot live side by side with terrorism, but he will finance it in Syria. We will never retreat from this position. And while we take all these steps, we will not make any concessions at all. Uh, very strong language from Erdogan here. And as I said, a complete U-turn on the language he was using prior to um, the US got involved in, in the negotiations, which I'll show in a second. Um, but what is also interesting here, so his big bugbear, if you like, are the Kurdish factions that are under the control of the US in the north and northeast of Syria. Um, but this is from uh, the article that I mentioned last week by Seda Karan for The Cradle. But Erdogan's most striking move to expand his alliance came with Huda Par, which political pundits linked to the so-called Turkish Hezbollah or Kurdish Hezbollah, a deep state-backed movement that carried out terrorist attacks in the southeast of Turkey in the late 80s and 90s. Sometimes confused with the Shia Lebanese Hezbollah, Hezbollah means basically party of God. Um, the Lebanese resistance organization, the Turkish movement is the polar opposite. It is instead heavily steeped in the ideology of Sunni Kurdish religious extremists, which are also operating in Idlib alongside Al-Qaeda. So this just demonstrates the hypocrisy, both from the US and from Turkey. And let's have a look at why Turkey might suddenly um, be changing their rhetoric on Syria. The U.S. has suddenly agreed uh, a 259 million deal of uh, F-16 equipment sale to Turkey. 
And if we move on, we'll see the details of that. This is from a Reuters article. Um, so US President Joe Biden's administration notified Congress on Monday of the planned sale to Turkey of avionics software upgrades for its current fleet of F-16 fighter aircraft, a deal valued up to 259 million. Um, the deal, first reported by Reuters, moves ahead with the sale of the modernization package for Turkey's aircraft after leaders of US congressional committees gave informal approval. So one assumes that that approval can be rescinded at any moment. Um, and then guess what? Turkey is a longstanding and valued NATO ally, a State Department spokesperson said in a statement. So therefore, they're bringing in the NATO card. They're putting pressure on Turkey to pivot back to NATO after he was showing signs of pivoting um, towards Russia and Iran. And then it goes on, Mike, in the last uh, section from the article. The F-16 modernization deal follows Turkey approving Finland's accession to the NATO military alliance and signs of easing tensions between Turkey and neighbor Greece ahead of Turkish elections next month. So again, that gives you an idea of why Turkey suddenly approved Finland's accession. Of course, Lockheed Martin Corps will be the principal contractor on the deal. And then importantly here, the smaller package was approved after the administration pushed the lawmakers to approve it to send a positive signal to Ankara, according to one source familiar with the deal. So I think that completely corroborates what I suspected, that the US is trying to step in and muscle Russia and Iran out of the way and to bring an end to any idea of normalization with Syria. Then if we have a look also at Turkey's opposition, main opposition to Erdogan and their foreign policy, this is Kemal uh, Kilik Daroglu, and I'm not going to repeat that name. Um, but if we move on, we'll see uh, a few of the points that they make in their manifesto. It's interesting um, that Erdogan uh, and his party have not yet produced a manifesto for the election, which is looming. So according to this report in Al Monitor, the opposition alliance led by the main opposition, uh, CHP, Republican People's Party pledges to fix the model that Turkish foreign policy has become. In a joint policy document, it says its foreign policy will be based on Ataturk's adage. Of course, Erdogan is renowned for basically overturning much of Ataturk's very popular policy in Turkey. Peace at home, peace in the world, and adhere to universal values and international law free of ideological considerations. The opposition pledges to maintain ties also with Russia, although it, in the paragraph before that it was talking about strengthening ties with NATO. So again, it's trying to, to keep the balance between NATO and um, the new Eastern Bloc that is uh, coming into power um, based on a balanced and constructive dialogue on an institutional um, level. Quite interesting language there. Reference Syria, the opposition pledges to work for the safe return of Syrian refugees as soon as possible, which is a major um, point for the election campaign on, on all sides because the 5 million Syrian refugees um, are a destabilizing influence for Turkish uh, people. It stresses respect for the territorial integrity and sovereignty of all regional countries and non-interference in their domestic affairs, but falls short of outlining a roadmap for normalization with Damascus. It promises intense contacts and dialogue with Damascus and opposition representatives barring militant groups to help peace efforts in Syria, but says nothing about how it would handle the armed rebel, rebel in inverted commas, groups that Ankara has backed. 
Um, and meanwhile, of course, while the US is trying to derail any peace talks between Turkey and Syria, as I keep repeating, brokered by Russia and Iran, what is the US doing? The US is increasing um, the attacks by ISIS, particularly in areas uh, in, in the central desert area of Syria to the east of Homs and close to Palmyra, which of course was taken by ISIS uh, twice during um, the, the height of the conflict. This is taken from my Substack uh, summary uh, of what's going on. So the US continues its murder of civilians in central Syria using ISIS proxies. On the 16th of April, at least 26 civilians were massacred in an attack on truffle hunters in the Drizen, uh, eastern countryside of Hama. It's reported by the anti-Syrian government, Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, SOHI, also funded by the EU. The 12 of the martyrs were members of the National Defense Forces, but majority of the attacks and kidnapped victims are civilians. The US is known to have planted ISIS cells in the area east of Homs, and the threat to civilians or military is high. Syrian civilians, of course, trying to eke a living in a country under economic attack from the West, are forced to hire military protection to survive. Added to this, of course, the desert is also still littered with ISIS and other terrorist group mines and IEDs. On the 17th of February, 53 people were killed in Homs, al-Sukna, a region near Palmyra, and dozens were kidnapped. And according to local sources, 139 citizens have been murdered since the start of 2023, the majority actually since the double earthquake on the 6th of February. And if you include military martyrs, the death toll stands at an estimated 289. A kilo of truffles, just to give you the idea, on the Syrian market costs between $22 to $65, bearing in mind that most people are earning less than $20 per month at the current inflation rate. And therefore, in such an economic depression, the risks are taken by civilians who would otherwise starve under US sanctions and siege. And of course, this is all part of the ongoing US and UK war of terror against the Syrian people. Yeah, okay. Th thank you for that, Vanessa. Uh, brilliant, right? Let's uh, come on to back to the UK and, well, AI weapon systems, because uh, many people will not know that there is an artificial intelligence in West in weapon systems committee in the House of Commons. It's a select committee. Uh, they've been holding evidence uh, on development and impact of AI weapons. So uh, they held, held yesterday the third public evidence session on this. Um, it didn't get any coverage at all in the mainstream media. I haven't had a chance to watch all of it yet, but I was just fascinated, first of all, by the, the people that are taking part. So if we just put that back on screen for a second, uh, we've got... Uh, uh, Courtney Bowman, who's uh, director, global director of privacy and civil liberties engineering at Palantir, uh, because Palantir have a good reputation for uh, data privacy and and so on, don't they? I don't know. Uh, not, not really. Uh, James Black, assistant uh, director of defense and security research group at the group at Rand Corporation, uh, Rand Europe. Sorry, and uh, Professor Kenneth Payne, professor of strategy at King's College London, and Dr. Keith uh, Dare, who's director of artificial Intelligence Innovation at Fujitsu Defense and Security. Uh, so they were giving evidence on this. This is part of uh, an overall evidence session, uh, which they're, or a, 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 sorry, a, a call for evidence rather, 
that they're entitling uh, how should autonomous weapons be developed, used, and regulated. Now, uh, many people will think that this kind of thing is uh, many years away, autonomous uh, weaponry making decisions about uh, what it's going to do. But we've been reporting over the last couple of years already, uh, Dar uh, sorry, the UK equivalent of DARPA and so on, uh, spending quite, quite a lot of money in this area to develop swarms of, of boats and, and swarms of uh, drones and so on. Uh, this is not uh, that far away to being some kind of limited reality. Not quite. We're not quite talking Terminator here, but nonetheless, uh, if you've got swarms of drones, uh, we're already seeing drones in in Syria and in uh, in Ukraine being used to, to drop bombs and so on that are operating. If we're, we're seeing swarms of them operating in an autonomous manner, that is a massive step forward. So they're concerned about the ethics of this. I think this topic needs to get a bit more coverage than it has been. Well, in terms of AI and uh, military, Mike, um, I don't think this would be the most pressing issue. I think it would be cyber warfare, right? That would be uh, the main battlefield. And they're already talking about this in America, about the danger of, uh, you know, when you, when you lay an agent on top of uh, an AI, like some of the advanced chat GPTs, so literally an autonomous uh, AI, an agent that's assigned to that and has give, been given instructions and can work autonomously, DDoS attacks around the clock, 24-7, denial of service attacks can knock out all sorts of stuff. So this is a big worry right now. I think Elon Musk um, has also commented on uh, this general area mm. with AI. But I mean, the, the, if the government's not having major discussions and inquiries right now on just the general, the general artificial intelligence uh, issue. Um, I think th that's shocking if the government's not already uh, ahead of the game on that. So, yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're more keen to promote it. But anyway, okay, if you like what the UK column does, if you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you can pick something up at the uh, UK column shop, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, and especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Quick reminder, uh, Scottish Vaccine Injury Group Unity Rally taking place in Glasgow tomorrow at 1 p.m. That's at uh, Buchanan Gallery Steps uh, with some interesting speakers. Uh, I just wanted to also mention that on Wednesday, we mentioned the uh, WHO Pandemic Treaty, our fundamental freedoms at risk. This was a presentation being given at the European Parliament by Dr. Uh, Sylvia Berendt, David Bell, Philip Cruz, and uh, Wolfgang Budarg. Uh, supported by Children's Health Defence Europe. Uh, and we uh, said that that would be streamed out on the Parliament uh, website. Well, in fact, they decided in the afternoon that it wouldn't be after all. So they didn't want that particular presentation going out on their particular live streaming platform. Uh, I can't imagine why. Was oh, so censorship by the European Union? Never. Really? So I want to announce as well, or just to remind people, Mike, that um, I, I said I was going to be speaking at an anti-war rally in Trafalgar Square tomorrow. April 22nd, Saturday, and I'm not, I'm not speaking, uh, definitely not speaking at that event. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that. If So if you do go or you're expecting that I might be speaking, it's not happening. I've had to cancel for personal reasons. Okay, thanks, Patrick. Okay, let's uh, move on to Fauci. Well, a little feel-good story because who doesn't like this? Uh, Twitter Files, latest installment. Fauci lied under oath. So they finally caught Fauci lying under oath. There's probably a few other times he did it as well here. Uh, you can go check this out. Uh, this is just a summary here at Zero Hedge, but let's look at the Twitter files themselves here. 
Great work by Paul Thacker, along with Matt Taibbi and some of these other journalists. And mind you, they're also doing this. They're not being paid to do this. Obviously, if they're making income off their Substack or whatever, whoever they're writing for, that's one thing. But Musk is not paying any of these journalists to do this. Very important point. So Twitter files, Fauci Pharma files, they're calling this one, and they're quite substantive. So here, uh, Elon Musk has uh, tweeted out, you remember back in December, my my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Well, you might actually get a chance here. So Fauci's been maintaining that he's not on social media, that he doesn't use social media, and he said so. He says, a lot of people are spouting a lot of things about me on Twitter, said Fauci uh, to Fox News here. This was on a media report. I've never had a Twitter account. I don't intend on having a Twitter account. I've had nothing to do with Twitter, so I don't know what they're talking about when they say all that, says Fauci. So he is the high priest of the pandemic. But look at this here. This is this is his, the transcript here. Okay, so he's. I don't tweet. I don't pay attention to social media. I wouldn't know how to access a tweet if you paid me, says Fauci. Well, it turns out, yes, he is getting paid, and he does know how to access a tweet because look at this. But internal Twitter report from March 2021, the company revealed that Dr. Anthony Fauci did an account takeover of, get this, the WHO COVID response. Fauci himself took over that Twitter account. So this runs contrary to Fauci's public statements, sworn depositions, uh, given a latest one on November 23rd, 2022. So there's the receipts, Mike. So Fauci is potentially guilty. He should be like Steve Bannon, like Roger Stone, they should be dragging him uh, in front of a court, a federal court, and he should be in jail. Mm-hmm. So this is your best chance to get Fauci behind bars, everybody. So go for it. What are you waiting for? So on the vaccine issue here, uh, a little bit of an interesting vignette that I think is going to be very revealing here. This is uh, by John Leake. This is on Peter McCulloch's, Dr. Peter McCulloch's uh, Substack Courageous uh, Discourse here. The great COVID-19 vaccine bribe. Okay, now we've reported on this, the incentives with GPs in the UK. Mm-hmm. We'll show you the evidence for that. But look at this. This is one of the biggest healthcare providers in America, Anthem uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're in Kentucky. Let's take a closer look at this here and look at this, in this, this section in particular. Uh, so, so, if, so it's a sliding scale on the vaccine bonuses for the doctors, for the medical uh, clinics. So if they can get 75% of their insurance holders, then literally $125 per vaccinated member bonus. You're talking in in just one of these facilities, you're talking five, 10, 20,000 recipients there of vaccines. So do the math. So this is big money. This is, it's substantial. It's enough to say this is a huge incentive to be not just offering vaccines, but to be aggressively pushing vaccines. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously this isn't just an American problem here, but there's the receipts, folks. So do check this uh, article out here by on Peter McCullough's Substack here. But this was in the UK, the Times admitted it, that was in 2021, family doctors to earn millions from offering jabs. And again, COVID booster jabs, GPs to be paid between 15 and 30, uh, pounds per vaccines to administer the rollout. Every surgery also paid uh, another 40 pounds for every 100 patients. Records updated uh, when the job is not carried out by the practice. So still getting paid through the administrative linkages through these, or- this is the NHS, 
and again, once again, and GPs to receive incentives payments to deliver accelerated care home COVID boosters. That's just from September 2022. How much? Well, let's look at GPs will be incentivized to deliver accelerated autumn COVID boosters in care homes with payments up to 525 pounds per completed care home. So they're setting upon the care homes to vaccinate the quote vulnerable, mm. right? Uh, it, it, Mike, wouldn't you think that the, you know, the person who's in their 80s, uh, who might be immune compromised already, wouldn't those be the last people that you'd be wanting to stick three or four boosters in? Mm-hmm. Is, is it just me or am I missing something here? I'm not a doctor, right? But even I can see the the average person can see there's a problem here. Shield the vulnerable, protect the vulnerable. Well, they're vulnerable. And looking at the record of the vaccine adverse reactions, maybe they're the last people you need to be sticking endless boosters in. Just a thought, just a thought. Indeed. Again, my opinion, I'm, I'm a nobody, not a doctor. I'm definitely not a public health expert. Okay, let's uh, move on to, well, a bit of news about news. Now, I wanted to highlight BuzzFeed news here because they're going to close uh, and we're going to oh, talk about that in a what second. A shame. But what I've got here is an article from them from 2017 because this was the original article that launched the Steele Report. Uh, mm. These reports allege Trump has deep ties to Russia. So BuzzFeed News broke the Christopher Steele Report, which alleged Russia, Russia Gate. Uh, and the subhead there is a dossier compiled by a person who is claimed to be a former British intelligence official. That was Christopher Steele. Alleges Russia has comp- compromising information on Trump. Uh, the allegations are unverified and the report contains errors, they say. But nonetheless, they ran it uh, and that story blew up massively. So it not just blew up, it triggered FISA warrants, uh, spying on American citizens, spying on the Trump campaign. It triggered a whole series of events. It opened the, the floodgates for Russiagate. Now, BuzzFeed News, uh, Vanessa, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, but BuzzFeed News, of course, won a Pulitzer Prize for covering Xinjiang. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> and I can imagine what their coverage of Xinjiang was. Let me let me guess. Yeah. <laughs> Wall-to-wall VOC propaganda. That, that's absolutely... And VOC, if people remember, were the, were the Nazi-founded victims of communism organization post-Second World War founded to to fight back against the Red Devils. So, um, you know, yeah, not surprised. So that's Uyghur genocide, right? That's filed under the heading of Uyghur genocide. Yes. So let's uh, let's bring uh, Noah Peretti, who's the head of BuzzFeed on. So BuzzFeed, of course, the, the parent of BuzzFeed News. So it's just BuzzFeed News that's going here, not BuzzFeed uh, in its entirety. He said, uh, we faced more challenges than I can count in the past few years, a pandemic, a fading SPAC market that yielded less capital, uh, a tech recession, a tough economy, a declining stock market, a decelerating digital advertising market, an ongoing audience and platform shifts. And terrible journalism and, well, the, at BuzzFeed. He's not mentioning that. That's but, something to but, do with it, doesn't it? <laughs> but what, right, so, so, so it's already causing calls because the question is, how do we support, how do we as a society support so-called independent journalism? Because BuzzFeed is apparently an independent uh, journalistic outlet. Uh, I wouldn't have thought so, but anyway. Well, they so seem to be, right? The calls are already asking for more government support for independent journalism. Well, and this is just such a dangerous thing. 
if we're heading in that direction. Okay, look. We've already got a mainstream press, which is utterly co-opted by oh. government and fun effectively financed by government funding. And uh, so, you know. so let's talk about this independent journalistic outlet, shall we? Mike Buzzfeed got two rounds of two hundred million dollars each from NBC Universal, massive global media conglomerate. Okay, two rounds of two hundred million, bunch of other funding rounds. So they've burned through something probably upwards of uh, three quarters of a billion dollars since they uh, came on the scene uh, recently. So like, where, you know, where do you draw the line on this? So uh, BuzzFeed is running an operation that is totally unsustainable. They're paying these hacks, uh, incredible salaries, Mike, and, uh, and they, they can't really justify it. And now they have to close their doors. Why not just scale it down hire some real journalists, and run a real uh, news press outlet. But that's not what they're for. They are a propaganda outlet, and they've been, you know, that's why they were founded, to fill the gaps alongside of some of the other ones like Salon. You've got these sort of uh, standard establishment left-wing media outlets. Um, Huffington Post, of course, they've got their whole digital uh, online offering as well. So I don't have any sympathy uh, for BuzzFeed and how long until Vice News is going to be following in their footsteps? <laughs> but Vice has also got hundreds of millions of dollars, including the seed funding of $17 million from News Corp, from Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. And they're supposed to be a left-wing outlet. Figure that one out. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, going to be very interesting. So I, I hope their archive is going to be uh, preserved in perpetuity, Mike, so we could read all the uh, Steele dossier articles in yes. the future, teach our children about fake news. Indeed. Okay, let's uh, let's correct the mistake we made at the beginning of the program, Patrick, and uh, get onto this story. Ex-CIA chief spills on how he got spies to write false Hunter Biden laptop letter. Oh yeah, there he is, Michael Morell, former acting CIA director under Barack Obama, who's got a podcast and everything, and he is probably one of the biggest hacks right now. <laughs> in in the whole sort of you know national security intelligence yeah so this is the New York Post uh, reporting this here this is incredible so let's look at how this story during the 2020 elections when the Hunter Biden laptop story came out Trump challenged Biden during a presidential debate right before the election and Biden said straight to the American people straight to Trump's face no 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 that's Russian disinformation and I've got 50 intelligence professionals that'll swear by that. And so Michael Morell was the guy who put all that together. Let's look at the clip, though. Turn back the clock and watch this. Russia, Ukraine, China, other countries, Iraq. If this is true, then he's a corrupt politician. Right. So don't give me the stuff about how you're this innocent baby. Joe, they're calling you a corrupt politician. Nobody. President Trump, I want to stay hell. on the issue of race. We're talking about the issue. from hell. President Trump, we're talking about race right now, and I do want to stay on the issue of race. President Trump, you have to respond to that. Please. Because look, Very there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. 
They have said that this is, has all the four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now yeah. another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly it. what is this that's where you're exactly going? What this is going. where he's going. The that, laptop right. is Russia, yes. Russia, Gentlemen, Russia? I want to stay on the issue of race. You okay? have to be kidding. Here Mr. we go President, again with Russia. We're going to continue Boy, on the issue of Oh dear. Arguably one of the most entertaining presidential debates in history. So that was Biden's party line. That helped Biden get elected. Right. Okay. And we find out that actually it was Joe Biden himself and his people that were pushing and used Morell to create this, this letter. Let's look at how this shapes up. So this is a pretty amazing bombshell. These are the people railing against disinformation. I just want to remind you of that. Here. So the New York Post story here, 50 intelligence experts say it's Russian disinformation. That's what happened. There's Michael Morell. Let's take a closer look at this. How did this story break? Let's look at this. So we find out Anthony Blinken, the current U.S. Secretary of State, reached out to Morell. This is before the election, October 17th, three days before the New York Post published the Hunter Biden emails about his Ukrainian business partner, uh, and the connections to his father, who was Joe Biden, Hunter's father at the time. So, and they're saying at uh, 10.53 p.m., the night of the call, Blinken emailed Morell a USA Today article claiming the FBI was examining whether Hunter Biden's laptop was part of a disinformation campaign. And that was the trigger that gave him the sort of the justification, there's Morell, to go forward with this. Morell said, he did a little bit of his own internet research, Googling and whatnot, and then reached out to retired CIA former operatives and officers and uh, asked for their assistance in compiling a letter discrediting the Post's reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop. And that was also used as the basis for Twitter banning the story as well. Okay, so Morell then gathered signatures from 51 intelligence officials, including himself and four other former CIA directors. Very important. So that's the uh, uh, appeal to authority, uh, fallacious uh, argument there in action. And so how did this end up? It ended up like this. So Nick Shapiro is a former deputy chief of staff for John Brennan, former CIA director, then took the letter to Politico, which then published it on October 19th, just two days after that, under the headline, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Dozens of former officials say so. The letter allegedly uh, says the Post story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. So that, and so every other media outlet then took that and ran with that as their story. Mm -hmm. So that's how propaganda works. So you're seeing in action here. So Tony Blinken, was behind this. So he was on the uh, Biden team as well. So this came from Joe Biden. And then the general uh, feeling on this is that um, Joe Biden wanted this to happen in order to basically kill the story and help him win the election. So is this not a, election interference or disinformation? All these things that they accuse everyone else of doing, that's what they've done here. Another example. How many more uh, of these horrible exhibits do we need? Uh, indeed, good question. Right, let's move uh, to France now, Vanessa, and uh, will the protests continue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is um, 
extraordinary footage of uh, the French protesters. This is predominantly against the new, uh, the, the, the hike in the um, retirement age, sorry. And here you have the protesters actually uh, storming the Paris uh, Stock Exchange, uh, Euro next. Um, and of course, a couple of weeks ago, I think they stormed uh, BlackRock. So it does appear that these uh, French uh, protesters against general austerity laws being brought in under Macron's um, very much globalist influence government um, are pretty savvy about the, the heart of the beast that they're attacking. Let's have a look at the video. I mean, really extraordinary scenes. I mean, Macron, I don't know, he must be, I think, now in the record books as the most hated French president in history, actually. Um, but this is also taken from a translation of an article in Le Monde, which appeared, first of all, in the official journal, official journal, um, decree authorizing the use of drones by the police in France in certain cases, published in official journal. Um, authorizes the use of drones by police, gendarmes, customs, or military in some cases for a prevention of damage to the safety of people, etc. Um, so this is basically the text of a law that was passed about a year ago, and interesting that it's now suddenly been brought into effect with the increase um, of the protests pretty much against across all of France uh, against Macron's um, austerity laws and changes in um, legislation. So it authorizes the use of drones by police, gendarmes, customs or military for prevention of attacks on the safety of people and goods in places particularly exposed, for assembly security on public roads as well as support agents on the ground to enable them to maintain or restore public order prevention of acts of terrorism, regulation of transport flows, border surveillance in order to combat their irregular crossing and help for people. Are there other situations where law enforcement officials can use these small remote controlled aircraft? That sounds very much like military law to me. Uh, well, quite possibly. Now, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on the uh, story of the, the French uh, publisher arrested on when, uh, earlier in the week, sorry, on Monday. Uh, this is Ernest Morel. If you remember, we covered this on Wednesday's program. Uh, he, if you remember, was approached by two plainclothes police at St Pancras Station on Monday evening after arriving by train from Paris. Uh, he was arrested at following six hours of questioning for alleged uh, obstruction and refusing to disclose passcodes to his phone and computer. Uh, his phone and computer were seized uh, by police. They remain in police custody. 
uh, and then he was released on bail. Uh, he will have to re return to London in May. Now uh, we showed a little bit of the uh, response from the pub from the uh, publisher itself uh, on Wednesday's program. Here's a little bit more for you. Uh, perhaps more seriously, they said during his interrogation, he was asked to name the anti-government authors in the catalogue of the public publishing house La Fabrique, for which he works. None of these questions should be relevant to a British police officer. And so the question the questions continue as to why this happened in Britain. Now, uh, if you remember, if we focus, I, I just want to focus a little bit more on this whole business of uh, being asked to disclose uh, passcodes and pass keys for uh, phones and for laptops and so on. Uh, this comes from uh, Schedule 7 uh, of uh, the uh, Terrorism Act uh, 2000, uh, a national security port and border power, the government says. Of course, this removes your right to uh, silence and the right to not incriminate yourself uh, because uh, you're required to give up your encryption keys. And I was wondering, uh, Vanessa, whether uh, this was a case of uh, the French government asking the British to inter intervene here because we have that legislation in place. Uh, what's the situation in France? Well, it turns out that in November uh, last year, uh, the uh, the courts decided that, in fact, refusing to disclose your phone password would now be a criminal act. So this article saying the refusal to communicate the unlocking code of a mobile phone can constitute an offence. Judges uh, in the Court of uh, Cassation, uh, the action was uh, called upon to rule on a drug trafficking case in which uh, a court of appeal had acquitted a suspect who refused to give the unlock code for his two telephones, uh, despite the case law of the court of cassation uh, so anyway th that that was effectively uh, made illegal but there is another piece of legislation uh, and that is the uh, article 30 of the law 2001-1062 uh, on community safety this allows a judge or a prosecutor to compel a qualified person to decrypt or surrender keys to make available any information encountered in the court in the course of an investigation so that seems like a much harder process in France. You've got to go to court. You've got to get a, 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 a court order from a judge before you can compel someone. Whereas in the UK, the terrorism police can just lift you and compel you on the spot. And if you don't, then you're taken to court and face fines. Now in France, uh, the failure to comply is three years jail time and a fine of 45,000 euros. But if it turns out at the end of the day that compliance would have guaranteed or would have prevented uh, a crime, then the penalty is five years in prison uh, and a 75,000 euro fine. So in both countries, we have uh, this leg similar legislation, but in the UK, it seems easier uh, to, to sort of cause problems for people or, or to compel uh, the requirement to give up a passcode. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on the arrest of this guy. Uh, and and because uh, 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 the reason I'm interested is because this happened to you not so long ago. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say. And I mean, what's extraordinary, yes, I recognize the six hours uh, detention because that's the maximum they can hold you um, for questioning, right? Um, I, when I came off the plane and they stopped me, I said to them I wasn't going to give them my mobile phone, I wasn't going to hand anything over to them, and they then told me, yes, well, if I didn't, and if I didn't give them the passwords, I was liable to prosecution. Um, and they can forcibly take the phone from me uh, anyway. Um, so it's better to comply with them. But I mean, it's quite extraordinarily intrusive that 
someone who simply took part in legitimate protests or has written about, uh, you know, from an opposition perspective to the French government can be picked up on British soil in this way. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's quite extraordinary the lengths to which they're going to now and how brazen it is, this uh, campaign to prevent dissent from almost any quarter. It's, it's extraordinary. And I think, yes, probably he was picked up in the UK, although I don't know if there has to be some kind of treaty between the UK and France for them to be able to do that. It seems strange because UK is no longer part of the EU. So under what laws does, does that fall, unless, of course, they're simply picking him up under the, under the anti-terrorism um, pretext that, that's exactly what it was. It was under yeah. the anti-terrorism pretext. So, but so the European the very, arrest warrant is still uh, recognised, even though it uh, is. But okay. that wasn't that wasn't invoked in this case. But, uh, but my point is that, but that all it would have taken. Who might? Because it has well, to be surely terrorism against the UK. It can't be terrorism against France. I mean, what was the threat to the UK? Have that to that is that? a very good point. Yes, that is a very good point. Um, so, where you know, does that take us? Well, it takes us to a journalist being detained for attending a protest uh, in Britain, a French journalist attending a French protest being arrested under anti-terror laws in Britain. Uh, and, a pub and his publishers come out with the statements. I think the NUJ, National uh, Union of Journalists in the UK, has also said they're very concerned about this. Uh, and just let's just kind of put this in context uh, while this is happening. Uh, we have this situation, which is still unresolved four years held in a Category A maximum security prison, H.M. Uh, Belmarsh in southeast London, Julian Assange. And he is unconvicted. It's been four years this month. So uh, wait, awaiting supposedly extradition to the United States. So I just think that's uh, worth reminding people that this is a grave injustice to an award-winning journalist, an award-winning publication, WikiLeaks, that somehow became an enemy of the state, and he's being stitched up at the moment. But guess what? There's a lot of legal eagles that are lining up and desperate to get a hold of this case. It's never been challenged. The Espionage Act has never properly been challenged in relation to journalism before. And all the experts, Mike, including Bruce Afrin here, said this is almost a slam dunk uh, for Julian Assange. Now, that's not going to be easy in a national security court in Virginia here, but he's pointing out the obvious. Assange is being prosecuted, at least in part, as retaliation for speech. And that is a protected right in America under the First Amendment. The government charges that WikiLeaks publishes U.S. quote, rules of engagement in Iraq, but WikiLeaks says it released these only after the U.S. defended the collateral murder video by claiming that the killings were within the laws of war and the rules of engagement. So it's very clear as a journalistic outlet, they did what they felt was uh, in the public interest. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody's gonna argue that wasn't in the public interest. Government hasn't proved its case that this put uh, anyone in danger. So, and they finish off here. So all this was of intense public interest and well within the bounds of journalism and to use the undefined contours of the Espionage Act, which is over, almost over 100 years old, piece of legislation, essentially, to prosecute Julian Assange in this way certainly smacks of retaliation for protected First Amendment 
activity. That's the main point. And I think this is what a lot of people are realizing. This might be why you could see his case potentially take an interesting turn mm. in the near future to save off the political embarrassment of trying to basically enforce the Espionage Act against uh, the First Amendment and journalism here. And also in Australia, there's a lot of pressure right now in the Albanese uh, government, Mike, to, to make a move on this. Now, Penny Wong, their foreign minister, has made some very unsavory comments about this here. But uh, activists here, to, the campaign to free Julian Assange has urged Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to boost its efforts to negotiate the WikiLeaks founders' release uh, when the government meets the U.S. and the U.K. next month to discuss the AUKUS deal. Now, I'm going to say, Mike, uh, fat chance that that's going to happen at the AUKUS deal. But what's interesting is the activists are very focused. You can see they're lining themselves up with the meetings of governments and the geopolitical scope is also included in this. To me, this is interesting because now journalists have to report this and they have to put things in context. Something that jur mainstream journalists hate doing is putting things in context. So I'm very encouraged by the Australian activists on this. It looks like they're stepping their game up a little bit for Julian Assange. Okay, back to the UK then and, uh, and inflation. And the, the Telegraph uh, there to go had uh, uh, this yesterday, in fact, this article, the Bank of England's ineptitude has become humiliating. And I just wanted to highlight a little bit. This is Ben Marlow, uh, who's the chief city commentator in the Telegraph. Whether it's Andrew Bailey and the Monetary Policy Committee, the Federal Reserve or Christine Lagarde, these figures were all seen by most experts as people who can do no wrong. The markets hang on their every word. Their speeches are poured over for the slightest change in uh, phrase, as though they were, uh, as, as though they aren't mere mortals, but real life wizards waving a magic wand over the global economy. But the truth is, they're nothing of the sort, and it only takes a dispassionate look at the track record of the world's preeminent central bankers to see that these unelected, unaccountable officials have made a litany of mistakes, even works they've fessed up to none of them. So this is all about uh, inflation, of course. And it's interesting to see uh, the Telegraph, traditionally a supporter of the City of London, the Bank of England, uh, seeming to to attack in this way. They left out Janet Yellen off that list, well, too, which in, is pretty shocking. Indeed. But this wasn't the only uh, sort of, shall we say, recognition that it was uh, monetary policy from the powers that be that has caused the inflationary process at the moment, and perhaps not so much wars in Ukraine and other things, and Russia in particular. But let's uh, look at uh, Andrew Sentence here, who's a former monetary, monetary policy committee member. Uh, so he used to help set uh, the interest rates at the Bank of England. And he was giving evidence to the Treasury Select Committee a couple of days ago. Uh, and he said, we had this long period of extremely low interest rates and further injections of quantitative easing after the immediate problems uh, and the financial crisis have passed. Uh, that all, I think, has contributed over a period of time to the inflationary pressures that we're seeing now. Uh, it did seem that quantitative easing went on for too long. We had more than a doubling of the amount of QE during the pandemic, and it wasn't clear that this was the appropriate policy at all. So he's absolutely coming out against. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a second. He's coming out, out against uh, QE and using very similar explanation to that that David Scott has given over the last number of weeks. Uh, so it's interesting to see somebody like that uh, making these comments. And uh, Patrick was just about to comment on his badge. If we put That's it back so on screen for a second, that beautiful, lovely lapel. What is that? It's uh, it's blue and yellow. Yes. Isn't it? What does that signify? Maybe he's sending a subliminal message as to why 
the inflation is running out of control. Maybe he is. While he's saying one thing, he's hinting at another. But uh, let's just remind ourselves what government policy is on this, uh, because Jeremy Hunt said this a couple of days ago. We have a plan, and we're going to reduce the pressure on families. It's absolutely essential we stick to that plan, and we see it through so that we have inflation this year, as the Prime Minister has promised. And what I really wanted to make the point here is that this is not going to reduce pressure on families at all. Remember, inflation is a, re- a measure of a rate of change. It's showing how much or how quickly prices are rising. If inflation falls from its current 10.1% back to 2%, even if it did that overnight, that would not cause prices to fall. That only means that prices aren't rising as quickly as they did before. Is that the, it's like the dead cat bounce, right? Exactly. So, so the point is, uh, the pressure that people are facing at the moment doesn't get relieved by having inflation at the end of this year or by the end of this year. All that means is that the pressure isn't increasing just as quickly as it did before. Oh, you say that, Mike, but they're all going to be crowing about the, the great job they did when inflation reduces, but it's still running out of control. They'll take credit for it, won't they? Yes, yeah. they will. Now, uh, I wanted to bring a lady on screen. Here she is. Uh, this is a tweet from Windsor Police in Canada. Uh, this is Toronto, a, a region of uh, an area of Toronto, uh, and they produced a, a news release uh, as a result of uh, an effort to find this lady. Uh, and now you can, we may say she's got some stubble there. That's, she does. That's no lady, Mike. Indeed, it's a bloke. Uh, so let's have a look and see what happened. Update: the suspect in this incident has turned themselves into the police. We want to thank the public for their support for sharing our post, our help in spreading the word, your help in spreading the word, played a crucial role in bringing about a resolution. So what happened here? Well, let's look at the press release. Here it is and what they say. So on the 4th of April, 2023, a female victim contacted the police to report that she'd been sexually assaulted while staying at a Windsor women's shelter. The suspect who was also residing in the shelter at the time, allegedly climbed into the victim's bed and sexually assaulted her. So. Vanessa, what we have here is that the authorities in Windsor and Toronto decided that the best thing they could do was to put this trans person into a women's shelter where he then sexually assaulted a genuine female in that shelter. And I I just got to ask, when is this insanity going to end? I have no idea, but it is. It'd be interesting to look at the figures of sexual assault since the whole kind of trans movement um, aspect was brought into play more um, more heavily and see if there has been an increase. I would kind of bet quite a large amount of money that there has been. Yes. Uh, go back to the uh, you want to go back to the, sheet. That yes. Desiree <laughs> Anderson, otherwise known as Cody Detremont. Yes. The uh, French-Canadian... Desiree Anderson, you got to give full marks for the uh, creativity on the name. This is just ridiculous. It is. This is really ridiculous. Well, look, we're just about at the end for today, but I I want to remind everybody that on Sunday uh, at 3 p.m., we, of course, uh, are going to be testing, or the government is going to be testing its emergency alert system across the UK. Uh, 3 p.m., that's going to be taking place. Just wanted to remind everybody that if you've got an iPhone, which is... uh, running uh, iOS earlier than 14.5, or if you're running an Android phone that's running Android 11, uh, sorry, 10 or before, then you don't need to worry because they're too old to be bothered with it. Uh, But if you want to opt out, 
uh, then you need to uh, get into your settings. Uh, the, it's pretty much the same process whether you're using uh, an iPhone or an Android phone. Uh, you get into your settings, uh, you look for emergency alerts and severe alerts and switch it off uh, and away you go. Okay. But at uh, 3 p.m. on uh, 3 p.m., Patrick's just decided to go and have a look to see what he can do. All right, okay. At 3 p.m. on Sunday, uh, hopefully, if you're watching uh, the uh, Alternative View live stream with us on Sunday, uh, you will not uh, hear anybody's phones going off during that. I'm torn whether to disable it or just to see what it's like. Yes. Uh, I don't know, because I sort of want to know what it's like. I kind of know what it's going to be like. It's going to go eh, eh, eh. Sort of. We did show a little video clip with a, a, an example of what it's going to sound like. But if you're vulnerable, uh, likely to have a heart attack or uh, driving your car, uh, probably best to switch your phone off or put it in airplane mode at 3, 3 p.m. on Sunday, uh, and then you won't be bothered. Yeah, if you're suffering from free-floating anxiety from all the fear-mongering news that uh, everybody's putting out, you might want to disable it. If not, then it should be a, 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 nice, bit of fun. a nice bit of fun at the pub on Saturday. Yeah, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, 3 p.m. Oh, Sunday, Sunday. Okay. yes. All right, uh, we will be back. Well, if you're uh, watching the Alternative View live stream on Sunday, uh, we you will see you there. But otherwise... Uh, St. George's Day is this weekend. It's it, tomorrow, isn't it? Is it? I think so. What? St. George's Day. This, this is the British holiday, right? This is number one, uh, pretty much. Vanessa? Can I just say Eid Mubarak, as Patrick said at the beginning, to all um, everyone in Syria? And to okay. all Muslim friends worldwide. Okay, so, so we've got Eid and St. George's Day falling yeah. at the same time. That's fantastic. Excellent. So <laughs> excellent. Right, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for some extra. Otherwise, Sunday for AV live stream and Monday for UK Colon News again. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. <laughs>